Hi, it's Rob here and just wanted to give you a quick prelude to this episode with Mark Littler. Mark is very experienced in terms of auction houses, in terms of antique dealing, in terms of cask investments, so whiskey, and that's going to be the main preface of this episode is deep diving into cask investments, what you need to look out for, um, things that you know don't bode so well. And there's also a lot of correlations here between generic cask investment advice and, and property advice. Uh, for example, do your homework, knowledge, 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 research, different signs of, of potential scams and all these sorts of things. It's an incredibly intriguing episode. We do talk a bit about antiques. We talk a lot about whiskey later on in the episode. It's had a great fun recording it. Uh, still recovering from operations, so I was a little bit groggy at parts. Had great fun recording it. You're going to have great fun listening to this. So without further ado, enjoy the episode. Welcome to another episode of the Property Nomads podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by Mark Littler. Mark has a BA in Fine Art and Art History and an MA in Museum Studies from the University of Manchester, where the focus for his thesis was the sociological construct of value in cultural goods, i.e., why one painting is worth more than another. Mark moved into the antiques and whiskey industry after he graduated and launched a business in 2016 following a 10-year career as an auctioneer. Mark, that's sort of a brief introduction, but we're going to deep dive into this. Um, Why get into that industry and and that line of work in the first place? (laughs) It's it's like with anything in life, you just sort of, you you go through the doors that are open to you. So the the BA in art history and fine art was because I wanted to become an artist. I started having a few exhibitions in my final year at galleries, and then you get some sales and you think fantastic. And then actually the galleries are the ones that take 50 to 60% commission. So I kind of thought, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> there's, there's more to be made on the other side of the fence of being a gallery. Uh, so that's where the masters sort of came in. Uh, and that was that really sort of spurred me on because although it was sort of focused on, you know, works of art, so why is one painting like a Hearst worth more than an Emin or something like that, it, th- that, that framework of understanding of value transfers to anything you know why is a rolex worth more than a casio why is a patek patek philippe worth more than a rolex you know why is a max boozer and friends worth more than a patek you know there's there's all these hierarchies in society and, and understanding the structure that creates the value is it, it was sort of fascinating to me so i graduated from a master's and it was literally the year that the the uk or london was awarded the the olympics and as a result the, all the budgets for museums were, were massively contracted so i i kind of took a sideways step and, and and went into a career as an auctioneer and it's and it's one of those jobs where it's the only limit is your knowledge you know if you can identify something of you know something obscure as sort of like an 18th century syphilis syringe or you know a 17th century piece of silver then you have value as a valuer to an auction house so i've got a thirst for knowledge i love learning about things and i think that's the sort of you know what sort of done me so well over the years is just that thirst for knowledge and then you know work my way up as from you know as an auctioneer and valuer I ended up working up at a firm called Tenants in North Yorkshire. Uh, and they're the biggest regional auction house in the country. You know, they turn over 
well, we would sell about two million pounds worth of antiques a year, uh, so a month. So two million a month, so you know, twenty twenty four million pound turnover. So we we handled a lot of things there. Uh, I ran the wine and whiskey department, which is what got me all the contacts for the whiskey industry. Uh, I also ran the silver department and and and, and did sort of her general valuations as well. But it was a family business, and as anyone will probably know, once you go so far into a family business, there's often a glass ceiling and. I just kind of was pressed up against the ceiling, taking on more responsibilities, but not actually taking on any more uh, sort of more meaningful positions. So in 2016, we decided to move me and my wife back back to sort of the South Manchester area where we're based and, uh, you know, set up the business and the, the purpose of the business. You know, I could have set up another auction house. You know, that's obviously what I had the most knowledge in, but why set up another business that's, that's, that's identical to many others? I couldn't see the value that I could add just by being another auctioneer. So I took a leaf out of my wife's book. So she's a financial advisor. So if you inherit £100,000, for instance, you go to see an IFA and they will give you independent advice on how best to invest it. And I, I thought, well, let's do the same for, for, for antiques and whiskey because the difficulties with auctions you know, property auctions are slightly different in terms of commission. But if you go to one of the main London Sarah rooms like Christie's or Sotheby's or any, you know, nationwide Sarah room like William Wallace or Tenants, they charge roughly 30% to the buyer and about 20% to the seller. So as a seller, you're only ever going to be getting back around 50% of what the buyer is prepared to pay. So I started this business with the view to sort of advising people on how best to sell things and, and you know to give you an example I, I won't name names here but one auction house sold a vase for two and a half million pounds that was then bought and then resold by one of the main London sale rooms over in Hong Kong or, you know one of their offices over in Hong Kong for about 10 million pounds so even though you've got the same item it can have different values in different circumstances and then, you know, the brokerage of items as well has been a huge part of our business in, in, in just sort of brokering private sales. Because if we can cut the auction house out, we can save our customer 40 odd percent in commission because we only charge our sellers 10 percent and we don't charge our buyers anything. And then we've just sort of moved on from there, really. I think that's absolutely fantastic. I mean, there's so many points that you've there's so many great points that you've raised. There. And, you know, this it's important to point out to to people listening that this is this is definitely not a property specific episode although i might try and link back every now and then because one of the similarities you've, you've just come up with is how do you add value and the fact that you've got a lot of experience uh, through through your trade and you've identified a gap in the market to add value and you, you know you've got that very entrepreneurial mindset and that thirst for knowledge which you know i love and you've just gone yep this is my skill set these are my strengths this is what I want to do. Here's a gap in the market. This is how I, I say exploit it, but you know what I mean. I mean it in the best possible mm -hmm. way. You know, th this is how I monetize that. And you've just gone off and done it. And I think there's that's some great entrepreneurial traits there, uh, Mark. So I think that's, that's kudos. No, and it's good. And it's like even in my own business today, like we we operate within the main business, which is Mark Littler or Mark Littler Limited. It's not the most original name I know, but it works. But, you know, within that, we, we've probably got five or six different, maybe seven different micro businesses operating within there. So we've got a, a bottle brokerage store. So recently there was an article in the news about a boy who was bought a bottle of 18-year-old Macallan every, every year by his dad for his birthday. Uh, he's 28 and he's 
you know, and he sold the, the, the collection for £44,000 to put towards a house deposit. Well, we were the brokers behind that sale, so we brokered that sale for him. So we've got that, you know, people buying bottles. We've also got people selling bottles is it, sort of another side of it. We help people exit their cask investments. So people who were buying casks of Macallan and Springbank and all sorts through the 1990s and 2000s, we help exit them. We also help people get into cask investments. And, and, and we do that in sort of like the most educational rather than sort of sales-based way. And we do lots of work for probate. We do lots of work for insurance. We do lots of antiques brokerage, a freelance auctioneer. And, and I think the, the, the key to sort of my success so far has been just sort of being diverse because, you know, the more plates you've got spinning, yes, it can be hard work, but the, the more chance that some of these businesses and, and, and areas of business are really going to take off. Effectively trying to create multiple streams, but within the same structure. I, I quite like that. It's the same with... I'd say, for example, doing podcasts, I've written a couple of books as well in, you know, a buy-to-let portfolio. And you, you start adding one one to another, don't you? And, um, yeah, they all intermingle somehow. And uh, some might take off, some might do well, but not take off like the others. So it's uh, yeah, good good strategic thinking there. And, and I think the benefit of that is that you, you get to carry over the, the success of your brand into your other businesses. So, you know, we've got well, we've got 190 or 195 five-star reviews on Google at the minute, and we've got another 100 or so on Yelp and another 100 or so on Facebook. And the confidence that that builds across all aspects of the business, you know, we might have helped someone sell a £45,000 collection of whiskey, but that might help someone sell a £150,000, £200,000 cask of whiskey with us. You know what I mean? And it all builds to your, mm. sort of your trust and, and, and presence online because you could quite easily separate all of these businesses out, but then you've got that branding issue of how they sort of re, you know, brand and market all of them, whereas actually they can all exist together and, and, and sort of support each other and help each other, really. Before we deep dive into the, the well, I'm just getting thirsty thinking of talking about whiskey. To be honest with you, so, uh, I do I do like a good whiskey. Um, but just before we go into that, let's let's talk a little bit about um, antiques. And you know, I'm I'm not an expert in antiques by any stretch of the imagination. But I imagine that a lot of it is down to knowledge and trust. So you know, I might be sat here with a bar of gold that's you know, come from a Spanish ship in the 16th century, I don't know. If someone thinks they've got something that's worth value, I mean, what's, what would you say the best thing to do? Is, is it to contact a specialist like you or do you, or, or do you, you know, what, what would your process be? Because so, some people might just not realise they're sat on something. So, so, so this, is, this is basically the, the essence of our business with the antiques. People have something that they want to know the value of and what do they do? They turn to Google and, and they search for it. What is this worth? And then we create useful landing pages and content that isn't in any way, shape or form a sales pitch for the business. It's a genuinely helpful, insightful page. And, and, and you know, uh, Gary V, you know, you've got to give to get. And, and, and all of the content on our website is, is mostly giving 99% of the game away. You know, we tell people what to look for in their Spanish gold or let's say their Rolex watches or their Lowry prints. And then there's a contact form at the bottom. And if they want more information, they get in touch with you. And I think, you know, more often than not, most people now, they contact us and they'll probably contact two or three different auction houses. And again, it's just presenting options to people, uh, you know, and not just having your interests at heart, but having their interests at heart. And then, uh, you know, that, that tends to sort of win over, really. 
I, I would totally agree with that. It's the same with the, again, it's the same with the podcast. It's the same with the books. You know, people will listen to the podcast. They'll read the books. They like that. You know, we'll get emails. Uh, someone says, well, I've got X amount. What, you know, what should I do with it? Uh, again, this is all property basis. Uh, and again, Aaron and I, our principle is the same. It's, well, okay, well, if you've got that, let's pick up the phone. Let's have a chat, open conversation. You know, these are some things you could do. These are some things you know, you might not want to do. Obviously, you know, we're not IFAs, we're not offering financial advice, just a general chit-chat. And sometimes people decide, yeah, I like these guys, I'm going to do something with them, or actually, you've given me a good idea about X, Y, and Z, I'm going to do that. And it's that law of reciprocity, I think, is is what gets built in over time, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I think, like, you know, I think, I think so many businesses, and especially in the antiques industry, uh, you know, you might send a valuation off of a watch, for instance, and they'll send you an offer and then they'll hound you. Are you going to accept it? Are you going to accept it? Are you going to accept it? And it's like, well, no, <laughs> they might have just wanted to use your service to get a free valuation. They, they'll come back if they want to get in touch. And it's kind of like giving people space is actually what's good because they might not come back with that watch or they might not come forward with your idea that you've come with. But then in two years time or six months time, whenever it'll be, you know, if you've, you've delivered a good service, they'll come back, you know, you know, they, they will. Absolutely, as I say, it's that law of reciprocity working working in tandem. And I, again, I would guess as well, uh, sort of the general rule of three that if someone's got something they think is valuable, standard rule of thumb, they should probably contact you, right? You know, yourself obviously is number one, and then maybe a couple of auction houses. Because I imagine the valuations, just like house valuations, I imagine they can be slightly different, not wildly different, but I can imagine there could be a bit of variation there of how people decide to value something. Yeah, exactly. And an estimate, like evaluation, it's just an estimate of value, isn't it? It's not a given. So what, what often happens is they'll contact two auction houses. They'll say 1500 to 2000 pounds because they know what their commission's got to be. You know, they, they know what their buyers are prepared to pay. And they're probably going to try and get it in with a sort of a, a realistically low estimate to entice buyers. We go in, we get an offer from a, one of our clients and we say, well, we've got you an offer of two and a half thousand pounds. And, you know, instead of trying to entice buyers in with that low estimate we just go forward with the best offer from one of our customers from the from the off and and and, and, it, and it sort of tends to work really so you, you would have a just so i've got this clear in my head so you've got obviously various leads coming in from people that are on the website reading the content i mean i've read through the whiskey content we'll talk about that in a second and that's fantastic but then you've also do you then have a list of uh buyers of you know someone says yeah, so i've got ten thousand pound i want to buy a whiskey collection can you go and find me something so you just but you're, you're the middleman matching is that correct Ex exactly that yeah yeah so so we were very much trying to get as many buyers as we can as trying to get as many sellers as we can and it's just sort of acting as that broker process in the center in the truest sense a, a bit like a, you know an estate agent they never take ownership of the property they, they just facilitate the sale and take a commission and that's exactly exactly what we do and I'd, I'd be foolish if I didn't ask this question because I'm being nosy. What's the biggest non-whiskey this is? What's the biggest value deal that you've been involved in in your time as an auctioneer or, or you know, indeed as Mark Littler Limited? Ooh, uh, I mean, individual items. So, so in terms of collections, you know, we're just going through a, 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 an estate at the minute. We've we've probably sold probably somewhere between like 150 and 200,000 pounds worth of jewelry from a single estate. Uh, and we're sort of doing that at the minute. And we've done that as a mix of auctions and private sales, you know, to maximize the return for the solicitor in this instance. And then individual items, whew, well, 
the casks of whiskey are always the biggest thing. You know, some casks of Macallan that we've sold are 150, 200,000. With the antiques, you know, we've sold some fab number plates. We sold one GTB. Uh, I can't say how much we sold that for, but it was north of 50,000. Nice. Uh, we've sold classic cars, you know, classic Porsches, 50, 60, 70,000. And then with the antiques, oddly enough, the antiques are not necessarily worth as much as some of the things like the watches and the jewellery but it's often you get the volume with them from sort of like large estates and things like that you see makes perfect makes perfect sense to me um yeah no happy happy days and i felt a bit lost of words i said uh, just off off uh just off air a bit groggy still recovering from operations so i do sound a bit uh bit groggy at the moment so apologies for that but getting on to getting on to the golden stuff then um let's talk about whiskey investments now I like I like a good whiskey. I like a good peaty whiskey. I like a Laphroaig. I think that's how you say. I'm looking at a, a Balvenie Double Wood, twelve years at the moment. That's also quite tasty. But many people, box standard people, just yeah. You know, I like whiskey, but they don't think about whiskey investing. So let let's start off with the very basics. Uh, why would you consider investing in whiskey, and then how does it work? So there's sort of two. Uh... It's, it's a big question that, so let, <laughs> let, let's sort of go through it then. So you've, you've got several, so, so, so why do people collect anything? It, it's whiskey has transformed in the last sort of five years from being a drink that people consume that was made in Scotland. So in the last five to 10 years, so it's gone from being a drink to a collector's item. You know, if you go back to the world record price at auction 10 years ago, it was probably about 80,000 pounds whereas now it's 1.5 million for a single bottle of whiskey. And, and, and that, that's because whiskey has transformed from being a drink to being a collector's item that gives status to the bearer. So it's, a, it's quite a fascinating time to be in the industry. You know, the value of bottles of whiskey and certain bottles of whiskey, collectible bottles of whiskey, according to the Knight Frank Index, which tracks the value of luxury assets, it's gone up over 540% in the last sort of five to 10 years. It's a huge amount of growth. But what we're dealing with now is kind of like, almost like in the 1980s and 1990s, when Rolex sports watches were transforming from being a utilitarian watch given to divers to help them operate, to becoming a collector's item and a status symbol in their own right. You know, you go back to Christie's in the mid-1990s and you look at, you know, the watch sales and you can see, you know, Newman Daytona's going for like a thousand, fifteen hundred pounds and, you know, double red submariners and all sorts for, for absolutely nothing. And then over the years, you know, watches have become more of a status symbol. And with that, the prices have gone up and up. And it's like people don't buy a Rolex because of how well it tells the time you know an apple watch or a casio you know quartz watch will keep better time so from a purely marxist perspective or a purely functional perspective the apple watch or the casio quartz watch should be worth more than the rolex which is expensive to service and doesn't keep the best time but the rolex says more about the buyer now and that's what's happened to whiskey so whiskey's become this status symbol now so especially over in asia especially over in the middle east as well uh and america whiskey sort of status here if you come to the table with a bottle of Macallan 25 year old you're the man should we say so to speak and it, and it is mostly a male dominated industry 
whiskey has a terrible image of being a man's drink and it's you know if it could shake that reputation sales would grow massively you know gin did it by attracting both men and women to it as as a drink as as, as sort of like a consumer unit but whiskey struggles to sort of shake off that macho sort of look with it so it's it's collected now because people because of what it says about the buyer you know if you've got a collection of expensive whiskey it's the same as having a collection of expensive watches or expensive cars it's got that sort of sort of scarcity with it you then move into sort of like the other side of it which are casks and they're a sort of slightly different proposition because bottles go up in value according to how scarce that bottle is so the bad news for anyone listening if you're thinking about starting a bottle collection today don't go out there and start buying the modern bottlings that are coming out. So at the minute, the Macallan uh, Edition 6 has just started to come out and that everybody's buying it, nobody's drinking it, they'll all put it into auction and they'll all hold it in their collection. You want to go back to the sort of 80s and 90s and early 2000s bottlings because at that point, people were drinking them. You know, the 1974 vintage, uh, you know, uh, Macallan 18-year-old, I think it was released at about £35. It's now worth retail about three and a half thousand pounds. So bottles are a trickier thing to grow in value because all you're relying on is the scarcity and the perception of that, that bottle. Now the casks is where things get interesting because if you buy a five-year-old cask of whiskey and hold it for 10 years, you're coming back to market with an entirely different product, a 15-year-old whiskey. If you buy a cask of whiskey today, it's, you know, a hogshead is 250 litres when it's first filled approximately. It's 333 bottles inside there versus a single bottle. And, you know, you do lose 2% a year on it, but 2%, it's, it's not a huge amount really. But, you know, we've seen casks that are 25, 30 years old still have a fantastic yield. And, and like I say, can, can return customers 150, 200,000. But... The key with cask investments and why you would want to get involved with that is it's there's there's much more potential and we as a business do things sort of slightly differently. We I would rather sort of educate someone than sell to them. And and if you look online, anyone there's loads of whiskey investment companies advertising left, right, and centre. And there are a lot of things that they don't talk about that isn't beneficial to their business, but consumers need to know you know one of these things being the, the the mechanism which transfers ownership of a cask of whiskey so you know when you buy a house you obviously complete the paperwork with your solicitor and once it's complete you get a copy of the land registry you know you get all your paperwork to back it up now most people buying casks today you know and this is this has been going on from the mid 1990s onwards people are told that all you need is a certificate and you get you buy your cask you hand over your money and you get a lovely certificate from the company that sold it to you like a, a transfer of title or a certificate of acquisition but all this is in reality is an internal piece of paperwork which has yes it's transferred the ownership within the company records but at the warehouse where the cask is lying because all of these casks of whiskey have to stay in HMRC approved bonded warehouses, it's still got the company's name on that sold it to you. So the process of transfer of ownership with a cask is with a delivery order signed by both the buyer and the seller and sent to the warehouse keeper. Now, the danger is if you just get a certificate of title or transfer of title or a certificate of acquisition or whatever, 
it basically means that it's probable that the ownership of that cask remains in the company which has sold it to you. Now, there's nothing malicious in that, nothing whatsoever. That is a perfectly good way to, to transfer, you know, to give someone rights to that cask. But it's, a, it's from my position as an extremely risk-averse and conservative person, it, it does come with risks. If you look at the whiskey scams of the 1990s and 2000s, companies were selling these casks, giving people certificates of ownership, and, and people thought, fantastic, they're a, they're a very reputable-looking company. But 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, when they're coming to sell these casks, they're finding that the companies have absolved, you know, uh, you know, have gone into liquidation and don't exist, or their cask has been sold five or 10 times behind their back. That happened famously with the Nant distillery over in Australia. And, you know, unless you're getting a delivery order, which is acknowledged by the warehouse where the cask is lying, you've got no autonomy over that cask. And yet the majority of places where you look about cask investment, they don't talk about the most fundamental thing. How is transfer, how is title transferred to this asset that you're never going to take ownership of? So that's where, you know, we're quite open and, 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 you know, along with the Scotch Whiskey Association as well, we follow their guidance and, and guidance that they issue. But unfortunately, some of the companies would rather look at the short-term profits rather than building sort of like a very long-term successful business, really. Just a couple of things on that. And I'm uh, first off, just a caveat, we will put a link in the show notes because I've read through your 46-page guide you've got on your website about whiskey or cask investment which is number one fantastic number two very informative and i, I mean i learned a hell of a lot you talk about uh, uh point number two you mentioned about um two percent being lost each year just to point out that isn't the cost of the investment that is the angel share because that is the sort of evaporation process of whiskey in general so that's just want to clarify that point as well and yeah the, the transfer of ownership again crucial and this is why having that knowledge is is fundamental because say you know looking from the scams from the 90s it's you know having fallen victim in previous um you know lifetime over now i'm just going to call it a ponzi scheme uh, not cask related it's something completely different uh, i am now able to recognize it straight away so if you don't know a lot about cask investment and you ju- just say you're googling of course you know visit martlittler.com or .co.uk first but if you're doing some generic googling and you see this company that's saying, oh, you can get a cask and you can double your money in like three or four years. That's a massive red flag. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the, the, biggest, the biggest thing, which is, which is fascinating because these other companies don't even realize it, is that they all talk about age being the key driver in, in, in whiskey growth and cask growth. And, and, and yes, it is one factor. 90% of whiskey that is sold is sold as blended whiskey. And the majority of whiskey that is sold as blended whiskey is less than 12 years old. So whiskey gets exponentially scarcer after sort of 15 years old. And that's for two reasons. One, because the majority of the holders of these casks, and, and, and you know, that's not be, be unrealistic. There's millions of casks of whiskey produced in each year in Scotland. 41 bottles a second are exported out of the UK. It's 24% of all UK food and drink exports. The export market is vast. So it's, you know, age does help the whiskey grow in value. It gets scarcer because like, like we just talked about, the, the, the whiskey inside the cask evaporates. 
and you end up with less and less over time. But the real driver of value is brands. So, so one of the best examples that we give people is a company in London called Cavendish Wines. Incidentally, we shut down by the serious fraud office. We're selling casks of Macallan and casks of Tobermory. The Macallan was 3,000 and the Tobermory was 1,500. Those casks today are worth, the Macallan's worth 150 to 200,000 pounds and the Tobermory is worth 10 to 15,000 pounds. So, but, but why? They're both the same age, they're both arguably the same quality. And then this comes back to sort of the work that I did in my master's. You start looking at the, the reasons behind this. And you look at the most recent data that we've got goes back to 2018. In 2018, the Tobermory Distillery sold 565 cases, six bottle cases of whiskey in 2018. By comparison, Macallan sold 980,000 six bottle cases. So clearly Macallan have always recognized the importance of their brand and marketing. So, so their product is marketed much far and wider and much more recognized product as a result. So if you're buying a cask as an investment, you, you, you don't just stick a needle in a map. It's like you wouldn't, I, I know very little about property investment, but I, I know that your listeners would know the regions in the country and the sub-regions within, say, Manchester or London, which are probably due for growth. So likewise with a cask investment, you wouldn't just say, oh, I'll pick uh, this distillery. What we help people do is buy strategically and help explain to them and show them the reasons behind our, our suggestions. So, so for instance, it could be there's a huge amount of investment you know, that's going on in branding there could be a significant amount of investment in the position of that brand and, and, and the hierarchy and the ownership of that brand. You know, so for instance, Diageo, who own 28 distilleries across Scotland, so a third of the distilleries in Scotland, pretty much, their marketing budget in 2019 was £2 billion. Pounds. You know, if you compare that to one of the new distilleries uh, that's that, that sort of selling casks, and they're offering casks, you know, these... Yes, they're a new distillery, you know, but five or ten thousand pounds for a cask of whiskey from them. Why on earth would you would would you not go for from the company that's got a two billion pound marketing budget rather than sort of like the the, the should we say the upstart really? And and again, there's there's lots of different companies, parent companies that own these big distilleries that most people aren't necessarily aware of behind the scenes. And that goes back to what you were saying at the start about knowledge having a thirst for knowledge and if you're gonna sort of get stuck into this there's an awful lot of learning to do but that's because you're effectively just you're just doing your due diligence i mean again people listening that be property related would know that it's you just do your homework and you know you don't want to get into analysis paralysis stage but you want to do enough homework to make sure that you're you know you're comfortable with your decision and that sounds like there's a, a very strong correlation here between both these industries and that's it and that sort of stems to sort of our role as what we do so you need various licenses in order to own a cask of whiskey as a business so so most of the other companies that sell casks of whiskey they call themselves whiskey brokers but realistically they're dealers they're selling their own stock and and, and making a profit on it we are the exact opposite we don't have the license to sell stock you know to own stock we just broker the sale between the buyer and the seller and we charge a flat fee of 300 pound plus vat on anything that you buy 
So the, the you know the, the prices are sort of fair, and and we've got a, a service charge, and we pass on the ca- the cost of the casks as we receive them. That makes perfect sense. And talking of talking of costings, and this is, again, this goes back onto that forty-six page document as well. It's not just a very simple case of buy a barrel or you know buy a hogshead or you know a quarter cask or whatever and I'll come back to it in 15 years time and hopefully it's gone up in value there's also you know regaging that could be done and opportunities to possibly visit your cask and possibly draw some of the um, whiskey from it but there's obviously there's cost to that which you say that um, many distilleries won't share with you could you just talk a bit about that and uh, what people might miss when they're first considering cask investments Yes. So, so the obvious thing is, is sort of like you, you buy a cask of whiskey, it's mostly for pleasure. You, you know, a lot of people think that there's short term gains to be made in casks and it's absolutely nonsense. Unless you've got 10 years to put aside in that investment, don't even begin to start spending your money. I've helped hundreds of people exit their cask investments. And this is where, you know, the real meat on the bone is, you know, Anyone can enter an investment, but you're only going to make money when you exit it. And we've got that experience of brokering millions of pounds worth of casks for people exiting their investment. We don't know anyone who has made a profit in, in less than 10 years, really. And, and, and yet some of the, you know, some companies, some places where you look online, you can see the, the return on investment is sort of being 10, 18, 25 percent per annum. It's nonsense. You need to look at a cask as like a bond, a 10 year bond. You put your money in, you leave it. 10 years, you come back and that's it really. But that doesn't mean that you can't sort of have fun or enjoy it while it's there. So one of the best things, so about 60, 70% of the character of whiskey comes from the cask that the whiskey is actually held in. So these are all oak casks and they've either either normally had uh, bourbon in them from the bourbon industry because casks over in America can only be used once. So they get essentially get flat packs shipped over and rebuilt up in Scotland in cooperages. And then the whiskey will develop in profile over the years that you own it. So one of the things that we definitely recommend our customers to do is to, you know, not every year, but maybe every other Christmas, get a bottle of your whiskey out, see how it's developing. You know, it's we, we, we work with a brilliant designer, Tom Nicklin, to design us some, some bespoke labels for our clients' bottles. So let's say that you own a cask and you want to take out half a dozen bottles they come with incredibly well-presented labels on them. And, and it, it sounds really daft, but it just makes a really good gift. And especially in business, we've got a little delicate dedication label so you can give a gift from your cask to somebody. And, and, and it's very personal. And, and whiskey is a gift. Normally works better than wine because its shelf life is much longer. It's going to be on their shelf for you know, a good few months unless they're really, really sort of going for it, you see. And, and, and that's what we wanted to make you know imperative when when we started selling casks to people that you can if you want to by appointment go and visit your cask so you can you know it sounds daft they're just big round wooden vessels they're not much to look at but considering it's an asset that you own but you never actually take you know ownership of in terms of the physical delivery of it it has to stay in these bonded warehouses it's good to sort of put that personal touch on it and that's why we send our customers photographs of the casks but again this can only happen because we've got access to a warehouse that allows private accounts and it allows people to sort of go and visit by appointment, you see. I like the way that's set up. And the key thing, as you've said, is it's the way that 
you think about it, the way you think about this as a very long-term investment, I would say the same. I'm not sure if this is a fair correlation or not, but I would say the same about gold and silver. Is you know just looking at the history of gold and silver, you know, gold and silver isn't an investment. And I'm talking about physically owning the stuff, not buying an ETF and you know getting a certificate of a bar of gold. It's physically owning the stuff. Uh, you know, number one, the economy doesn't work for you nine times out of ten, but keep up to date with what's going on and economic movements. And number two, again, it's not an investment as such. This is a hedge. Well, gold and silver, a lot of people say, is a hedge against the economy, hedge against stupid people running X, Y, and Z. Point being, before I start ranting off on one market, when it comes down to cask investment, as you said, it's important and it's imperative to have a very, very long-term strategy, but that's not always a guarantee that you're going to make money. Because I mean, I imagine that you might have the odd case where there's an issue with the barrel, for example. Have you got any sort of reality stories for people just in case they... So the barrels are normally pretty pretty fine. The, the, the casks themselves are fine. They, especially if they're in like a well-managed warehouse, and, uh, casks don't just explode overnight. They'll start off with a small leak and then sort of get worse and worse. Mm. In a small, well-managed warehouse, it'll get picked up on, so that's not really a problem. If you, and the, the, the way, the, and this is, a, this is one of the other problems. The main reason that people lose money on a cask investment is because they've got absolutely no idea of the value of or the cost of what they're buying. And this is why there's been so many scams over and over again with people sort of getting caught out when you buy a cask of whiskey. So if someone offers it, so, so imagine if you were buying a property and someone described the size of the house by describing the you know the the circumference of the property so instead of saying it's 1500 square feet they said oh the outside measurement of the property is is, is you know 142 meters you'd be like what the hell are you trying to do to me here or it's like buying the car and saying it's not got 100,000 miles on it it's oh, it's just been around the world twice you know you think who are you trying to count here with casks the easy way to sort of spot a someone or, or someone who is trying to mislead you is when they sort of try and advertise the cask in terms of the number of bottles which it contains. Because bottle counts do not exist. If you look from a purely legal and semantic point of view, how big's a bottle? You know, that's the sort of the very first sort of sort of thing to note, really. But let's say that you've been offered a cask of whiskey. It's got 286 bottles in it. Uh, and let me just do this on the computer so it's right. So it's ten thousand pounds and you've got 286 bottles so that's how most people would sell you a cask of whiskey so you look at that and you go bloody hell that's only 34 pounds a bottle it's a lot more than that in the shops well hang on a minute you're comparing whiskey which has not had any duty or any vat paid on it it's not in a glass bottle it's not got any label it's not got any branding it's just sat in a cask in a warehouse so you may think that 10,000 divided by 286 is 34 or 34 pound 96 per bottle. By the time that is bottled, and by the time you've paid all the VAT in duty, and let me just talk you through that. So in a 10,000 pound cask purchase, when you bottle it, so you only pay these taxes when it comes out of bond, but the whiskey is always going to have to come out of bond at some point in its life, otherwise it will just evaporate away. 
the person buying it is going to be looking at the bottling cost. So you need to look at this too. So a £10,000 cask of whiskey, first of all, you've got, two, you've got VAT on the purchase price. So there's £2,000 straight away. You've got duty at £28.74 per litre of pure alcohol in that cask. So that cask that yielded 286 bottles, it would be 200 bulk litres at 58%. So on that, you've then got £3,334 worth of duty. The brilliant part about duty is that you then pay VAT on top of that as well. So it's a tax on a tax. So in total, you've got another £4,000 worth of fees there. You've taken it roughly £500 to move the cask to a bottling facility, £200 to have the bottles shipped to you, and about £3,500 to have the, the whiskey put into a bottle into it with a label with a capsule. So you might think 10,000 divided by 286 gets you your bottle price. In actual fact, that 10,000 pound cask is gonna cost about 20, 21,000 pounds to be bottled all in, including the purchase price. So that puts your bottle price at 70 pounds, not 36. So if you ever see a cask advertised as like it's 10,000 pounds and there's 286 bottles, it's, it's like you said with Ponzi schemes, once, once you're aware of it and you are aware of what they're trying to conceal from you, and clearly they're trying to lead you down the path of going 10 grand, 286, who in their right mind other than someone boring like me is going to understand the cost of VAT and duty on a cask of whiskey? So we've built and coded a, a, a cask calculator on our website. So it's marklitler.com. And then if, if you go into the cask education section, you'll see a cask calculator. So you can put in the purchase price and the other cask details, and it will give you a, a realistic uh, price per bottle so come back full circle to your question do people ever lose money yes they do but normally it's when they overpay for the cask in the first instance you see they might pay triple the market value for it but not knowing because they think it looks cheap compared to the bottled product mm, that makes sense so effectively i mean we always have a saying in property you make you make uh, you make your money when you buy so i buy it at a discount or something else you know or you can add significant value uh, so i suppose would it be fair to say caveat mTOR buyer beware when you talk when we're talking about cask investments? Yeah, exactly. And this is the thing, and this is why I, you know, what I do, we sell a fraction of casks compared to what everybody else does, but I go for quality quiet clients rather than quantity of them. We do it in the right way, supplying customers with casks at a price that I would prepare, you know, be prepared to sort of buy myself. And, and, and we do it with all the right mechanisms. We make sure that the buyer gets a delivery order directly from the warehouse so that let's say if I die tomorrow to them, it doesn't matter. My company stepped away from their cask. It's their name at the warehouse. So it's, it's, it's the very hard way of doing it. It's the very slow way of doing it, but it's, it's the only way of doing it in my mind. Mm. That, that, that does make sense as well. Uh, Mike, just moving on to my next question. I mentioned uh, that the one of the most expensive about I was sort of doing this for the you know sort of the golden egg as such of of cask investments. And um, you said that one of the most expensive barrels uh, that you've managed to broker uh, was about one hundred and forty-seven thousand pounds. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong. So is that a case of someone um, years and years ago, 10, 15, 20 years ago, they've done a cask investment, they have monitored that cask as best as possible. They've they've done what they can. They've kept it in warehouse. Uh, in bond etc and 
within the last 12, 15, 18 years or such, that because of the the branding that's gone along with it and the you know changes in society and the way that people view whiskey, that all of a sudden this five ten thousand pound initial investment because of these external factors made this barrel worth one hundred and forty seven thousand pounds and then they've just through yourself you've managed to broker a, a sale on for someone else is that does that make sense is that how that's a it i'm not i think yeah. what i'm trying to say is it's not a necessarily a case of pot luck um but you know market factors have helped turn that investment for that person into you know, a really profitable investment yeah, and that's right. And it is so, you, you, like you say, you make your money when you buy. You once, if you buy the cask from the right distillery that is going to be going through, you know, as best as you can predict, good transformation over the next sort of 10 years, you know, they've got a good investment behind it. It's not just a random distillery in the sake of buying a cask for the sake of buying a cask. Then literally, you just sort of sit back and let the, the you know, the, the distillery do the work for you you know it's it's you know you don't have any control over the marketing of it but the owners do and and this is where it differs very much from wine as an investment so let's say chateau lafitte 82 one of the best wines ever produced robert parker the wine advocate everybody scores at 100 points if you've got lafitte 82 your 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 investment sh- shoots up if you've got lafitte 83 or 81 yeah they weren't so fantastic vintages, so they just sort of muddle along. Now, with casks, you it's all about the distillery. If that distillery repositions and goes from being a standard brand to a premium or super premium brand, then your cask gets taken along for the ride because whiskey you know if you you know the one and a half million pound bottle of whiskey it wasn't bought because of the quality of the tasting notes. it was bought because of how scarce and rare that bottle was. And because it was owned by McAllen, you know, produced by McAllen, if that makes sense. So it is a passive investment in the way that once you buy it, yes, all you need to do is 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 pay your rent. Rent's about thirty thirty five pounds a year for a cask of whiskey in a warehouse, and and that's it really. You you get it measured, you know, the, the contents regaged every couple of years or so, uh, and that's it really. But yes, the person in here is sort of like an interesting sort of story for you the cask so we've, we've since beaten our record you know our record is just short of 170,000 pounds now for a cask of McAllen that was bought from Cavendish Wines in 1996 Cavendish Wines charged the man 3,000 pounds for it now at the time that was about three to three and a half times the value of the cask you, you know whiskey magazine i think it's uh, volume three you know the, the third edition of whiskey magazine there's a whole article and we've transcribed it on onto our blog as well if you fancy reading it it talks about the value of those casks of mccallum that they were selling so cavendish wines were charging three thousand pounds for these casks and they were worth 650 700 pounds so at the time the person massively overpaid for it part of a scam further to that as well as being overcharged, Cavendish Wines would sort of operate in a bit of a Ponzi scheme and reselling the same cask over and over again. Our customer was fortunately, you know, fortunate enough back in the day to buy, pay for the cask on his credit card. Uh, and, and that meant that he was able to 
take a bit more ownership of it when things went into administration and etc when the serious fraud office got involved so funnily enough the customer who bought that cask as part of a ponzi scheme as part of a scam paying way too much for that cask at the time three thousand pounds literally did nothing for 25 years and then said mark what's this cask worth he hadn't even had it re-gauged at all turns out that it was an incredibly good health and, and yeah we, we sold it for just under one hundred and seventy thousand pounds so but and this is one of the other fundamental things of cask investment you can't buy time if you're a company and you want to release a 30 year old whiskey you can't set, click your fingers and make one today you know if you make put a cask down today and you want a 30 year old it's going to be 2050 until you bottle it so if you're an independent bottler or you're a casino or somebody or a hotel and you know these are some of our biggest clients that, that want to release a 30 year old whiskey they have to come back to this to, to the market and, and buy one from people like you or me if we if you've got a cask investment and, and buy it from you and that's the exit really you know you get paid for having your money tied up for, for, for so long in it really mm. it's good to know that that's the exit strategy I, mean, I think my my thirst vessels are getting more desperate the more we talk about this stuff it's fantastic uh, it just um uh, sort of a couple of basic uh questions um i suppose mark um, talk about different cask sizes so you've mentioned a, you know a barrel we've mentioned hogshead um can you just quickly go through the types of uh barrels and and casks that are available and then a rough idea of what a, a fair price would be that someone could expect to invest in in such a thing Fine. So, so there's, there's several different sizes of casks. The most common is an American barrel. Uh, you know, the, the, the bourbon industry in America can only use a cask of, you know, a cask, you know, the wooden vessel, because a cask is just a wooden vessel once. So once it's been used once in the bourbon industry, they can't reuse it. So broadly speaking, they get them shipped over to Scotland and then they either use them as a 200 litre barrel again or... The, the casks are broken down and reassembled and into what's called a hogshead. So they add two or three extra wooden staves to make to increase the capacity. So they increase the circumference of the cask, so thereby increasing the capacity internally to about 250 litres. But a hogshead, it's a bit like saying it's a, it's a, a you know, it's a one bed flat. It can mean a lot of things. It can be 220 litres. It can be 300 litres. It's just the name for sort of like a rebuilt cask, approximately 250 litres. And then above that, you've got butts and punchions, which are about 500 litres each. You only really need to be buying barrels and hogsheads. Hogsheads are pretty much the best bet for, for sort of like longevity, really. Once you, you know, butts are obviously twice as expensive as a hogshead because they contain twice as much liquid. And a hogshead is normally around 20% more than a barrel because they contain 20% more whiskey than a barrel. And you, you really don't need to spend much money on a cask. Don't be fooled into spending a lot, a lot of money in it. You, you only really need to spend anywhere between three and seven thousand pounds. It's sort of like the sweet spot. The, the reasons for this are twofold. Again, there's, a, there's, a, there's an article on our website called Every Distillery That You Can Buy a Cask of Whiskey From. You, if you look at some of the new cask investment programs from brand new distilleries, so, so those that are sort of yet to prove themselves, they've not even started producing whiskey in some instances, you know, the casks that they sell are between sort of five and £10,000. So if, if we can come to you and say, look, here's an eight-year-old cask of whiskey, 
for less than the price you're about to pay from a new distillery. And the, the distillery that we're offering from is well established. Let's say it's 200 years old. It's going through all of this investment. Then clearly you on a very basic level can, you know, can perform sort of some due diligence. You know, we'd never recommend spending more than seven grand on a cask of whiskey because it's just way too much risk for, for anyone to take on unless they've got a comprehensive understanding of the market. So people sometimes think they'll buy an older cask, buy a 15-year-old cask and let it get to 18-year-olds. And this is one of the other biggest myths in the industry that there's an increase in value at 8, 10, 12, 15, 18, 21, 25 years old. It's absolute nonsense. Casks only stop being whiskey when the ABV drops below 40%. So if you've got a 17-year-old cask and the ABV is at 56%, I would bet hundreds of thousands of pounds that that cask will make it to 18 years old. So you don't need you could pay that premium today for it, knowing that it's going to get to 18 rather than waiting for the clock to tick over it and it become 18 years old. And this is where some people think they can buy a 15 year old cask, hold it for three years, sell it as an 18 and, uh, and make a profit. Unless you've got a very, very, very good insight into the industry you, and, and you know exactly what that cask is worth, the likelihood is you're going to overpay for it and you're probably going to struggle to get out of that purchase price for quite a long time. Mm. Again, I, I know it sounds like we're talking about the same stuff all the time. It just goes back to buyer beware and, and having the knowledge and understanding. If you don't have that, then you could be taken on a on a ride and that might not work out too well for you. And, and that's it. And it's like one of the things that we always sort of say to customers is, and anyone who's still listening to the, the, the podcast, you know, this is one of the best bits of information we can give you. It's sort of like, just take a step back from the material that you've been given. So if you're looking at a cask investment or a bottom investment or whatever, just take a step back. What are you reading? Is it a sales pitch or is it genuinely helpful information? If it's a sales pitch, the likelihood is that you're not, you know, there's something in it for them other than, than, than just the sale, if you know what I mean. If it's an educational piece, then that should give you more confidence because, you know, if, it's like if you know you're buying a flat in a city centre apartment. If it's all a sales pitch, and actually the graphs and the numbers are meaningless, it's like how many kebabs are sold in the shops nearby. It doesn't matter. It's not relevant to you. And it's like a lot of companies cite the Knight Frank Index in relation to cask investments, when in actual fact they're completely different things. Bottled products, which is what the Knight Frank Index tracks and has gone up 550 percent in the last you know 10 years or so, is completely different to a cask. It's like comparing the value of a Mayfair penthouse to the value of the materials used to construct it. You know, whiskey in a cask has had no branding applied to it. It's not gone to market yet. It's like the raw materials that go into making the finished product. So if, if, if you're reading anything that looks like a sales pitch, just, just take a pinch of salt because there's a reason that you're being sold to rather than educated because it's not an, in, it's not a, it's not an area where there's a lot of education about. And this was the purpose of the, the podcast in the first place, Mark, was to get, you know, an experienced individual uh, like yourself on board to give a dose of reality. We love doing it on the podcast, you know, not just property, but, you know, other areas as well. So just want to say a massive thank you for your insight and your time. It's really, you know, really useful. So I appreciate that. The... No, it's, it's... Yeah, go on. 
just to say no it's, it's, it's you know I'm, I'm a bit evangelical when it sort of comes to casks and i'm sorry that i've sort of gone into sort of so much depth with it but it's it's it, it, it frustrates me when certain people within the industry and certain sort of things they can sort of tarnish a whole industry just because of their malpractices and we're sort of riding against that trying to sort of help people and, and just genuinely help people make a, a good purchase completely i love these ethos i completely agree and don't worry about going off on one or you know the more knowledge the better just a couple of quick um thoughts that i've had before we start to wrap up i'm acutely aware we're coming up to an hour um the it, would you say that and again, we talk about research, we talk about knowledge, we talk about doing your homework. And would you say that there's an element of um, having to look into your crystal ball when it comes down to what the distillery might end up looking like in 5, 10, 15 years' time? Because, uh, you know, that you can have a big marketing budget now, as you've alluded to, with some companies. But doesn't necessarily mean they'll be still doing that in 10, 15 years' time. What, what would you say to anyone that asks you that question? The... It's so it, there is, I think if you do it correctly, then, you, then you, there isn't that sort of element of chance. You know, the, the whiskey industry is phenomenally large. It's only just started to break over into Asia. You, you know, it's only recently that whiskey has, has sort of hit sort of like the Asian markets. And, and like I say, what's exciting about whiskey is it's just transformed from being a drink to a status symbol. So what you're looking at at the moment is like an industry in its infancy that has just transformed from being a utilitarian product to a luxury asset. So look at Rolex again. We've used this analogy before. In the 1950s, 60s, they were making small batches of watches for diving companies like Comex and the you know the Royal you know uh, the Royal Marines and things like that. If you went back to them and and sort of said, would you be selling diamond embellished rainbow bezel Daytonas in in 2020 for 50, 60 thousand pounds? They would laugh and say no. But the the whole sector, luxury watches as an asset has grown you might get jostling for position within the top so rolex might fall from grace and amiga or patek and other people might sort of become the next you know, big brand if you know what i mean in terms of value and it's the same with that with casks and whiskey yes mccallan's top at the minute but i don't know of any any luxury asset as a group that has fallen from being a luxury asset you, you get jostling for position at the top but broadly speaking once something has become a status symbol cars watches handbags you know jewelry it doesn't it doesn't ever fall back you know you, you do get it's 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 you know the brands related to fashion but the, the 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 sector as a whole isn't so i i think we're in a very exciting early stage of this 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 whiskey sort of phenomenon that's going on and if you want my sort of prediction for the future i think single malt whiskey if you look where it's going now the price of, of decent single malt whiskey, like at Lagavulin 16-year-old, for instance, it's the best part of £50 for a bottle, and that's the, the, the entry-level bottle that they do. So there's a gap in the market between uh, blended whiskey, which is okay, and single malt whiskey which, with an age statement, and the price of that single malt is going up and up. So I think that as a sector, single grain whiskey is going to come in and fill that void and this is sort of talked about in Edrington Beam Suntory's annual report as well. They sort of talk about the value of grain increasing in terms of value. Uh, and, and this is so single malt whiskey is going to continue its trajectory upwards. 
and isolate more people. But below that, you're going to get this whole new subcategory of single grain whiskey. So single malt whiskey is made with malted barley on pot stills. Single grain whiskey is made of grains like wheat rather than barley, but on coffee stills or coffee stills that are run 24-7, 365 days a year. Hague Club, some of you, you know, you know, listeners might be aware of that David Beckham launched, is a grain whiskey. You can do it right. And the way to look at single grain whiskey is to look at how gin transformed itself. Ten years ago, you would go into a pub and you'll be lucky to get Bombay and Gordon's. And yet now people are paying 50, 60 pounds for a bottle that they're just going to pour a mixer in with. And it is essentially just imported whiskey with, a, you know, imported grain spirit with with some botanicals through it so i think that the market is going to continue to grow i've got a great confidence in that i think there will be sort of changes within it but i think it's 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 almost at the point where like let's say with cosworth and Vauxhall novas you know i remember five ten years ago when when i was a bit younger like all my friends drove, drove Novas. They were sort of like the boy racer cars. And now, you know, for, for a good example of a Vauxhall Nova that hasn't been a, abused by a boy racer, you can spend ten or 20,000 on one, you know. So it's it's the new classic. And that's what's exciting about it, really. Time does wonderful things, as you've alluded to multiple times already, uh, you know, in, in, in the podcast. It's time, time is a wonderful thing. And um I'm excited as well. I'm excited listening to it. I'm excited to, you know, at some point have a, you know, go more in depth into it. But Mark, the last fleeting question I've got, and it comes down to decision making, is a lot of time, you know, when it comes to investments and making these sorts of decisions, um, you know, we should think pragmatically and not emotionally. That's obviously quite important. But when it comes down to whiskey, um, if if you like a particular style of whiskey so let's just say i'm going to stick with lafroig and, and peaty whiskey because that's the thing i've got on my mind at the moment if i quite like a peaty whiskey but then i speak to you and you're saying well actually hang on a minute there's something from space side that you know actually i think is going to be possibly better in 10 15 years time how how would you work that would you ultimately do what the customer wants and if they want a peatier thing go with there or you know do you see what i mean we've sort of got that balance of pragmatism of well, this company's got a bigger brand bigger marketing spend this company's going to go places versus yeah but i quite like pt whiskey and i want a pt one just for the sake of having one I mean, how would you approach that well we all so the, the customer sort of always comes first so, so their preference is always absolutely first so if, if someone wants a peated whiskey over a space side whiskey and again like the, the investment side is only sort of like a secondary side of it you know it really should be down to the whiskey that you're buying the, the, the cask for really the so if you wanted a peated whiskey we can get you one if you wanted a space side we can get you one if you said mark i just want to own a cask of whiskey what would you recommend then, then we can sort of make recommendations. And, you know, this distillery is at Ardmore, for instance. Uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, in the Highlands, it's not in, it's not on Isla where you get all the normal peated whiskies from. So you could, because distilleries like Lagavulin and Lafroig and Beaumont, you can't get casks from every distillery at a fair price. And you can't only get actually any casks from Lafroig pretty much anywhere. So you might have to look a bit further afield. So you might have to look at something like an Ardmore for your, you know, for your cask if you wanted a peated whiskey. But it's, you know, we always listen to our customers and sort of go with what they, you know, what they're asking for. Again, that makes perfect sense. It's, um, 
you know, all, all leads to sort of my last question. Uh, number one, actually, first thing first, I'd love to come back and have a part two at some point. I think there's been, we've only scratched the surface here, haven't we? I think a part two would be, if you're up for that, I'll be up for that at some point in the future. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Wonderful stuff. Uh, uh, secondly then, Mark, um, you've mentioned a, a lot of content. You've mentioned multiple things. I'm very grateful for your time. If people want to find out more about you and get in contact with you, not just about whiskey, but if they've got other things, possible antiques and so forth, how do people go about finding you? It's pretty simple. Just just, just, just our website, marklittler.com dot com and it's l-i-t-t-l-e-r so mark com, and there's everything on there and it's we try to be an informative website rather than sort of like a sales website so there's literally hundreds and hundreds of pages on there from the history of rolex of mariners to how you know what is a delivery order to you know the value of silver cow creamers for instance it's uh, <laughs> i'm pretty lucky to have such a diverse job really Wonderful stuff. As usual, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Uh, Mark, again, let's say it's been wonderful to be able to deep dive into something that listeners wouldn't be able, you know, normally deep dive into. And uh, massive thank you for your time, and um, hopefully, look forward to doing some business moving forward. No problem. Thank you very much for having me on. <laughs>